after his awakening, the Buddha thought that he would teach what he had learned. He thought that he would teach uh, the practice that he followed that led to his awakening. He would teach his Dhamma. As he had these thoughts to teach, resistance arose. And he began to wonder if what he had learned, uh, this path to the deathless, this path of awakening, uh, would be too difficult for people uh, to learn, for others to learn. said, you know, the people of my day and age, you know, they're so wrapped up in their material things and their desires and their likes and dislikes. I don't know if they're going to be able to, to, to follow this path and to awaken. Finally, he saw his doubt and uh, decided that people would be able to learn. Uh, people would be able to, men and women would be able to follow this path. There's some, he said, with just a little dust in their eyes. At first he said, enough now with teaching what only with difficulty I reached. This Dhamma is not easily realized by those overcome with aversion and passion. What is abstruse, subtle, deep? See, I told you it was hard. I told you. <laughs> what is abstruse, subtle, deep? hard to see, going against the flow. Those delighting in passion, cloaked in the mass of darkness, won't see. But he had a change of heart. He realized that the doors to the deathless were open. Ajahn Sumedho, the former abbot of Amravati Monastery, retired now. Uh, this was really the credo of his teaching. The doors to the deathless are open. It really comes from what the Buddha said uh, in that sutta where he realized that some would learn to be able to follow the path. The Buddha said, open are the doors to the deathless to those with ears. Let them show their conviction. Open are the doors to the deathless to those with ears. Let them show their conviction. I mean, I like that part, you know, those with ears. Because, of course, what he's saying here is you have to listen. You, know, you have to listen to what he's teaching. You have to listen to, uh, to know what to do so that you can go through those doors to the deathless. Sometimes we call what the Buddha taught the true Dhamma, the true Dhamma. You know? And sometimes that may seem like kind of an arrogant or a fundamental way of thinking about what he taught. Uh, but it's, 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 it, you know, it's the set of skills that he taught. He said, you have to follow these skills. You have to learn to develop these skills. So in this retreat, we've talked about, you know, to the best of our ability, in other words, my ability, the true Dhamma, the teachings from the Pali Canon, the teachings offered by uh, the Thai forest Ajans, for the most part. Uh, I told the story about how uh, Ajahn Mun in the uh, really the late 19th century, early 18th, uh, early 20th century, and the, some of the monks in Bangkok realized that you know they weren't practicing 
and teaching the true Dhamma. And they wanted to get back to doing that. And they went to the forest and started teaching what the Buddha taught and practicing first what the Buddha taught and then teaching it and passing it on. And that's what, to the best of our ability, we try to, to teach. So the Buddha said, if the doors to the deathless are open to those with ears, if we listen, if we follow these teachings, the doors to the deathless will be open to us. And part of the problem, of course, is what the Buddha said and is alluding to here is that we don't follow the instructions. And he said that uh, you know we may complain that our practice isn't developing and that we haven't uh, uh, walked through the doors to the deathless, but we haven't followed the instructions. He says it's like uh, pulling the, the horns of a cow and expecting milk. Yeah? We can tend to be that way. That's what it's like when we follow, don't follow the instructions and sort of expect results. You know, if you want milk from the cow, you have to pull the udder. So he said, the doors to the deathless are open to those with ears. Let them show their conviction. So if we listen, if we develop conviction, the doors to the deathless will be open. He's really speaking to the importance of conviction. Those who have conviction will make it through the doors to the deathless. A lot of what we've talked about on this retreat is conviction. So the Buddha taught monks, nuns, lay women, and lay men. He taught householders. There were householders at his time and since the time of the Buddha who have been able to follow these teaching, teachings and achieve awakening. One of the most well-known householders that the Buddha taught was Anatta Pindaka. Many stories in the canon about Anatta Pindaka. Anatta Pindaka uh, began his, his time uh, studying with the Buddha really as somebody who uh, helped the Buddha in the Buddha's efforts to uh, pass on the Dharma. Anatta Pindaka started the first monastery. Actually, he donated the money for the first monastery at Jetta's Grove. Uh, and Anatta Pindaka and his cohort uh, supported the Buddha and the monks and the nuns uh, and uh, in, in, uh, in doing what they needed to do to practice, to practice Householders have always supported monks and nuns in their efforts to practice, to practice, and to teach. Now, at a certain point, uh, and this story is related, always interestingly to me, in, this, in the Piti Sutta, the, the Rapture Sutta, Concentration Sutta, uh, uh, at some point, uh, the Buddha indicated to uh, Anatta Pindaka and his cohort and in the sutta, it said, it's, you know, it's one of those suttas where Anatta Pindaka is there with 500 followers. Yeah. And you know, at, at this point, the Buddha said to Anatta Pindaka and his cohort, he said, you know, you, you've done a tremendous job of supporting uh, the Dhamma and being extremely generous and starting monasteries. Now it's time to go into seclusion and develop piti, develop rapture. So these were all householders. And he said, now it's time for you to take time for seclusion. So he encouraged the householders, 
to practice seclusion just like we've been practicing for the last week and to develop, and he didn't say, you know, develop meditation. He said develop PT, develop jhana, develop these qualities. These are qualities that householders can develop and are asked to develop within the confines of the Buddha's teachings. At the end of Anatta Pindaka's life, as will probably be true at the end of all of our lives, he was dying. Uh, and uh, you know, he was in his last days, and he, uh, Sariputta, who was one of the Buddha's main disciples, and Ananda, who was of course one of the Buddha's chief attendants uh, and disciples, went to visit uh, with the dying Anatta Pindaka. And at that time, uh, and, uh, Sariputta, who was an adept teacher, as well as the Buddha, uh, gave Anadapendika uh, the wisdom teachings, very similar to the kinds of teachings that we've been offering here over the last week. He gave Anadapendika the wisdom teachings. And uh, as he was giving him the teachings, Anadapendika just started, tears started coming down his face. And Ananda was, you know, Ananda was kind of an emotional guy, got kind of worried. He said, are you dying? Are you dying? And Anadapendika said, no, I've just never heard these teachings. You know, and I'm just so overcome at hearing the beauty of these teachings. And, uh, and, Sa and Sariputta said, well, you know, we haven't been giving these teachings to the lay people, only to the monastics. And Anadapendika said, oh, no, 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 you must give these teachings to the lay people. There's some of us with just a little dust in our eyes. You know, and it's said that since that time, these teachings have been passed on to the laity. To the householders. So we're here today because Ananda Pendika said, you know, let's we got to do this. And of course, the Buddha and Sariputta and the other monks said, yes, we have to pass on these teachings. And since then, they've been passed on. You know, and the Buddha was always very clear. He said, I would not offer these teachings if I did not think you could learn these teachings. So one of the misconceptions that we have, I think, about uh, about our capacity to 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 know the deathless. Uh, and, to, and to develop these wisdom teachings and to find the kind of true happiness that the teachings offer, one of the great misconceptions that we may have is that uh, you know, we need to be a monk or a nun. And it's, it's just that. It's a misconception. Uh, you know, and I, I, I can say that with a lot of assurity, uh, you know, just for myself, in, uh, in working with people over the years, you know, in knowing monks and knowing uh, uh, householders. And uh, you know, being a monk is, is for a select few people. You know, uh, not everybody. Most people aren't cut out to be monks. You know, most people aren't cut out to be monks. You know, it sort of depends on your personal karma. Some people are cut out to be writers. Some people are cut out to be cooks. Some people are cut out to be monks. From my perspective, not many people are cut out to be monks. I mean, we've had one person in our group in my teaching students that I've had over the year who became a monk, Bill. Uh, a lot of you know Bill, or some of you know Bill, uh, uh, became Tan Will, and, and he's been a monk at the monastery for a number of years. You know, and at a certain point, Bill came to me, and you know, he said, you know, like I think I might want to be a monk, and I was like, I think this guy is is cut out for it. You know, I wasn't a hundred percent sure of it. A lot of people, not a lot, not a lot, but over the years, every now and again, somebody comes to me and I want to be a monk, I want to be a nun. I don't say. Who are you kidding? No, I, don't, I never say that. But you know, I, we, we have a good conversation. And I, in most cases, 
you know, and it, sometimes it's, oftentimes it's resolved right there where we're talking about it because the reasons are not so skillful. Uh, uh, you know, in most cases, it's pretty clear to me that this person really isn't that cut out to be a monk. Uh, with Bill, I kind of like, I wasn't 100% sure, but I, I had, who is, right? But I had a pretty good idea. I felt comfortable. Like, I, I felt he didn't know Tan Jeff. I said, go to, go to Tan Jeff and go to Ajahn Amro and spend a little time and you know, see what you think. You know, maybe you want to try to go to one of those monasteries. And uh, he decided he would go to Wat Metta and, and see about becoming a monk. And I remember uh, uh, he, was there, he was there as a candidate for maybe like six months, eight months. And I went to the monastery and it was like, this guy had taken to it like a fish to water. I mean, it was unbelievable. You know, and I knew the guy, I knew Bill for a couple, like, couple of years, and, you know, it was like, he just was flourishing as a monk, you know, in a way that, you know, like I had, didn't see in New York. I mean, he was just in his element, and, uh, and he's been a monk since, uh, but he was really an exception. He was really an exception. Uh, most of us aren't cut out for it. You know, there's certain uh, conditions that... Uh, you uh, have to be able that there's certain conditions that really support the kind of practice that monks do, you know, intense seclusion and renunciation. Most of us aren't cut out for that. You know, it's not our karma. I mean, I don't like camping, you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like, you know, uh, uh, and, and that's fine. And that's fine, you know. And, and again, you know, I'm kind of going through this because uh, because you don't need to be a monk or a nun. This is a misconception that we have, and of course, the Buddhist teachings support that. Like for me, it'd be much easier to to develop my practice and awaken as a householder than if I was a monk. You know, I, I'm I'm pretty clear about that. Now, the thing you have to have is community. The thing you have to have is community. You have to have others. Uh, and that's in large part about what being a monk is. I mean, that's why the Buddha initially started the Sangha, you know, the noble Sangha, is because it's like, this is going to be really hard. You know, this is a difficult practice. What did he say? Abstruse, hard to follow, against the flow. Uh, it's going to be difficult. You can do it, but you can't do it alone. So let's, you know, so let me make my job easier, he probably said, and let people, you know, if a lot of people do it together, we can do it, just like this retreat. You know, just like this retreat. So, you know, we, we as, as, as leaders start communities because our job is to pass on the Dharma and the way that uh, folks are going to be able to learn the Dharma and practice the Dharma and awaken is going to be in community. In community. So that's really important. We need each other. Our practice is stronger when we practice with each other. The practice is joyful when we practice with each other. And we develop in conviction when we practice with others. How many times over the years has somebody said, wow, I, I saw this person met practice, and I've seen that, and I saw that person, you know, and I just see how their practice is developing, and it gives me conviction that I can do it as well. Or I hear them talk in class, and I know that I can do it. So this is a practice, the Buddha's, the Buddha's path, those instructions that comprise squeezing the udder, are, uh, it's a path of practice and action. It's a path of practice and action. It's not a path of study. It's not a path of study. And this is really important to remember, you know, if we're going to know what we need to do to awaken. 
to experience awakening. And I'll, de I'll demystify awakening in a few minutes, but before we get to that, uh, <laughs> you know, I always said my job is to clear up uh, misconceptions and to demystify a lot of things that we're mystified by. Uh, so, you know, what the Buddha said was that if you study a lot and don't practice, you're not going to get very far on this path. If you study a little bit and practice a lot, you'll get far. If you don't study at all and practice a lot, you can still get very far. You know? You know, in that sutta, in that passage, the doors to the death, open the doors to the deathless to those with ears to hear, uh, you know, the Buddha is saying, listen. Listen to the instructions, learn the instructions, and then practice. But there's not a lot of value in studying the instructions. You know, it's like, you know, uh, it's like if you if you want to cook something, you know. Uh, I mean, I'm not a great cook, but I'm I'm decent. Uh, you know, it's like if I get a recipe, you know, it's not going to behoove me, you know, for like days just to study the recipe. You know, it's like I gotta. I got to get it in front of the stove and, you know, get the ingredients out and go to work, right? And usually when I cook, you didn't know I had these skills, did you? Uh, you know, and usually when I cook, you know, a recipe, uh, you know, the first couple of times, you know, it doesn't come out as good as it does after three, four, five times when I really learn, you know, the right amounts and how to do it. You know, and you know when it gets really good, when I start using my ingenuity, you know, and I kind of make it my own which is what we've been talking about, right? That's when it really is good. That's when it's really something special, right? It doesn't come from studying the recipe. You know, in my practice, I mean, I, I, I've done study, you know, particularly in my earlier years, because I needed to learn the instructions. I needed to study the instructions. Uh, to some extent, I needed to learn them, but I, you know, I never, poured, you know, the midnight oil, you know, I wasn't pulling all-nighters on the Satipatthana Sutta by any means, you know. I mean, I, I, I studied the instructions, uh, but mostly I put them to practice, and I had one advantage, which I, I was teaching them too, which is a huge advantage because you really learn through teaching so well, right? Uh, but, you know, I studied, uh, uh, you know, when I first started, you couldn't get the Pali Canon. I mean, it was very hard to get much of the Pali Canon in readable English language form. And uh, there were only a few books, so there really wasn't that much to study. Anyway, gradually in the mid-90s, when Tanjav and Bhikkhu Bodhi and others started doing translations that were readable and good translations, then that opened my practice up for me, because I could really read the texts and really, you know, uh, and I had a teacher who could explain them to me, uh, which was good, but still it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, like in, you know, in the library all night studying, uh, you know. But for, but for, you know, for a while there, I put time into study. Uh, I don't really study that much of the Dharma anymore. I mean, I'll read things occasionally now and then. I'll read, I'll, uh, I'll uh, uh, review different suttas, so on and so forth. Uh, I'll go back over things I know, but. I'm not really studying that much. I'm practicing. You know, that's 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 what I'm doing. There's a little bit of study, but not so much. You know, sometimes that would, boy, maybe you should be reading more. Maybe you should be studying. You know, no, you should be practicing more. You should be practicing more. That's where my effort goes into is the practice. That's where to put your effort is into practice, is into practice. 
we've been talking over these last nights about these wisdom teachings, the teachings that uh, Sariputta gave to uh, Anatta Pentaka. Uh, and uh, how, these, how we can practice with these teachings and how we can develop this wisdom. Uh, this wisdom, as probably is clear from the way that we've talked about this over these last days, is not intellectual wisdom, and it's not certainly any wisdom that is found in books. The wisdom that will set you free is not found in any books. You know, you're, you're only going to develop some intellectual wisdom by reading books. But you know, the wisdom that will set you free is found inside. It's not found in books. It's not found on the internet. It's not in that new podcast. Like, that's going to be it. I'm going to listen to that new podcast and I'm going to awaken. Not going to happen. You know? Not going to happen. You know, the wisdom that will set you free is in the heart. It's inside you. This is why it's so important to develop trust, to develop conviction in what you have inside you, your inner wisdom, the wisdom in the heart. A lot, a lots of study, I think, you know, and again, this is sort of my, it's not an amateurish opinion or view, but, you know, and it's based on some experience. It's, it's somewhat speculative, I suppose, but, you know, it, it may be very well be that, uh, lots of study, the propensity to study a lot, may indicate a lack of trust in what's inside. Like, I don't have what I need, so I have to read this book or listen to this podcast in order to get what I don't have. But we have to learn to uh, trust in what we have. Now, of course, there's a cultural bias in terms of, as I've talked about, in terms of wisdom is found in books. It's intellectual. There's also, uh, dare I say, you know, a cultural bias in terms of uh, the the inclination that people have to want to sell you things, you know. You can't. Nobody can sell you the wisdom that's in your heart, you know. Nobody's going to make any money on that. So, you know, the way to make money is take this course or read this book, etc., etc. I always. Uh, you know, for years, I was like, I'm never going to write a book. I'm never going to put up Dharma talks online, you know. Uh, you know, and I've written a couple of Dharma books, and I put a few, some talks online. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, it's really important for us to understand that we have to learn to rely on what's inside. When you practice with the heart, as we've been talking about, when in your practice you learn to rely on your heart, uh, you develop internal assurance. When you trust in the heart, in what's inside, you develop conviction. You know? I mean, you have to start somewhere. You have faith in the Buddha's awakening. But you know, the Buddha's awakening is based on the wisdom that you develop that's already in the heart. It's the, based on the trust that you have in what's in your heart. Uh, the more you rely on what's in the heart, the more you develop in conviction in yourself, and what you have inside in awakening. Because the only way you're going to develop trust, the deep trust and faith and conviction in awakening is by experience awakening. Yeah. And the only way you're going to experience awakening is if you trust in your own inner capacity to know it. So this is what we've been talking about last night. No cessation. 
know this quality of awareness that you know is, is right there in any moment and that you have the capacity to understand understand your experience in the terms of the ways that you're holding on by bringing your awareness to it and let the heart understand it and that will set you free and enable you to let go of what you're holding on to that's what's going to enable you to let go not what's in the book I, but you know, it's like we all fall into that. It's like if I read, this is going to this is going to tell me the thing I need to know. It's going to tell me the thing I need to know so that I can awaken, right? No, it's in the heart. It's in the heart. It's in the heart. So you develop conviction uh, by trusting what's in the heart. By trusting what's in the heart. But if you're squeezing the horns of the cow, you're not going to develop conviction. We've talked about some of these stories from the Pali Canon, these stories that are expressions of the true Dhamma, where different personages in the Pali Canon, like Sona and Sister Patarka and uh, Ananda, we haven't talked about Ananda so much, uh, learned to trust what was in the heart and were able to awaken. And we talked about Sona, the monk Sona, who uh, was. Doing, you know, practicing walking meditation so assiduously that his feet were bleeding. I was trying so hard, trying, trying, trying so hard to awaken, and uh, and was you know and was just suffering and had such great doubt that he was thinking about giving up, uh, you know, the monastic life and going back to his householder life. Uh, and what did the Buddha, you know, the Buddha saw that, and what did the Buddha do? You know, the Buddha said, "Trust in your own ability." to be in tune with the Dhamma. Trust in your own ability to tune in to what the right effort is. He didn't tell him, well, I think you should do 20 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the afternoon. Trust in what you have inside yourself. Trust in what you have inside yourself. You have this ability to be in tune. Just as, you know, Sona was a musician like the Buddha was. He said he used to play the lute, right? You know, you were able to kind of know when the lute was in tune. Well, you have that ability to know when you're in tune. Trust in that. You know, Sona learned to trust in that and awakened. And awakened. But the Buddha guided him to what was inside of himself. That's what a good teacher will do. Sister Patarika, we talked about last night, who, the nun who was besieged with doubt and then opened up uh, to uh, her capacity for awareness and new cessation, experience cessation, the liberation of awareness. You know, but that awareness, the only place you're going to get that awareness, that's in the heart. I mean, all of you have that capacity for awareness. You, know, you, know, you have it, it's right, and, you know, and, and, and that experience of knowing cessation is always right there in any moment, but you have to know it. You know, but you have that capacity, so learn to develop that capacity that's in the heart. And then it was then there's our friend, of course, the venerable Ananda. The venerable Ananda. You know, Ananda was kind of like the Buddha's foil. I mean, I always, people have heard me say this, but I've always said he, he was kind of like 
you know, this is this this is the part of the show where I date myself. You know, Ananda was kind of like Ed McMahon to the Buddha's Johnny Carson. You know, you know, the Buddha was always kind of needling Ananda to some extent. Uh, but it's said that you know Ananda was not able to awaken while the Buddha was alive. And it's said that the reason for that is he relied too much on the Buddha and not what he had inside of himself. And he was only able to awaken when the Buddha died. And then, he's, then he had to trust in himself. The Buddha wasn't around anymore, and it, sure enough, he awakened. Now, of course, the Buddha gave him the instruction. Before he died, the Buddha said to Ananda, you know, first Ananda was like, I, I, I screwed up, you know? It's like, you know, I, I didn't awaken. All these other guys did, you know? Uh, and the, Ananda said, look, you've helped me so much. Your generosity has enabled me to pass on the Dharma. You've made such good parami, you know? Now it's your turn to awaken. And what he, what he said to Ananda was, you don't need me. Be a lamp unto yourself. Be a lamp unto yourself. What you have, what you need, you have inside. The Dhamma is inside you. The Dhamma is inside you. Buddhas just point the way. All I do is point the way for all of you, the Buddha said. I just point the way to what you have inside of yourself. This is the Buddha's message to us. You know, be a lamp unto yourself. So as we, as, we, as we learn to be lamps unto ourselves and trust in our own innate wisdom, uh, we begin to uh, experience uh, awakening. Yeah. Uh, there's different stages of awakening, stream entry, once returner, non-returner, and finally arhant. The, the stages of uh, awakening are interesting because they give us kind of signposts and sort of illustrate how the process of awakening develops and what it looks like as we go along. Yeah. So they're good signposts for us. Uh, we don't really have to think, and I'm not one for like, I'm gonna get stream entry. Uh, what's more important, I think, is understanding what you have to do to awaken, which is what we've talked about. Practice in accord with the true Dhamma. Trust what you have inside yourself. Be a lamp inside yourself and to yourself. And it's good to know what the indications of stream entry are so that you can really see to it, you know, am I, am I on the path? And, and understand and start to see that you are awakening as you experience these uh, elements of stream entry. It's what happens when we begin to open the doors to the deathless. And uh, we cut three fetters, there's 10 fetters uh, that, that block us off from awakening. And at stream entry, we cut the first three fetters. The first one, interestingly, is doubt. The second one is self-identity view. The third one is grasping at habits and practices. So I thought I would talk a little bit about what that kind of looks like. Over the last few days, we've talked about how you practice in accord with the Dharma so that you can cut the fetters. I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about what it looks like when you're able to cut them, when they start to either cut them or they start to sever, you know, maybe they're not completely cut, but they start to, you know, they start to become threadbare. So we learn to 
cut doubt, cut the fetter of doubt, and develop conviction, right? Two sides of the same coin. We learn to cut doubt, the fetter of doubt, and develop conviction, as we've been talking about, by trusting in the heart, trusting in our innate wisdom, you know, as we've been talking about, you know, in developing concentration, developing internal assurance, knowing ease and disease. That's an element of wisdom. You know, learning to choose ease, learning to uh, understand, uh, uh, you know, not so much, uh, in, not intellectually, but in the heart, uh, how to develop an easeful, a pleasant, uh, and pleasurable abiding by having internal assurance, the ability to tune in. And then, of course, to develop insight, as we've discussed, by bringing, trusting in our awareness, you know, our, our, our intuitive awareness in terms of understanding the way that we're holding on, uh, uh, understanding what's blocking the heart, understanding the nature of the objects that we're holding on to, understanding what it's like when we don't hold on, you know, understanding those things in the heart, right? We know cessation in the heart and not in the mind, right? It's a felt experience. So this is what we've been talking about. So what does it look like when there starts to be conviction? What does it look like when the fetter of doubt is cut? I'm going to talk about a few things with each of these fetters. When the fetter of doubt is cut, uh, your commitment to daily practice is unflagging. I was trying to think of a good word. The word, which I'm not going to be able to pronounce, is indefatigable. Right? It's indefatigable. Your commitment to daily practice. You know, at first, our commitment to daily practice. You know, and I'm talking about that daily getting on the cushion practice. Our commitment for most of us is kind of undeveloped. Our practice may be spotty. It's half-hearted. You know, practicing sort of requires an act of will. You know, we have to kind of push ourselves. Uh, it may be a struggle to get to the cushion. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I think it is for most people. I mean, that's just based on 20, almost 25 years now of, of teaching. You know, it's a struggle for people to get to the cushion. It requires a lot of effort. It requires an act of will. Uh, you know, there's often that question, should I practice today? Do I have to practice today? Maybe I'll practice a little bit less today. There's that hesitancy, right? There's doubt. When doubt is cut, there's no question. You know, there's no question whether, you know, some days you might not be able to practice, but there's no question that you should. There's no question that you should. You know, it's a no-brainer, you know? You know, I mean, when, when doubt is cut, this is just, this is what you do. This is what you do. You're a Dharma student, you practice. It's just what you do. It's just what you do. Frogs croak, writers write, Dharma students, you know, why do you, frog, why do you croak? I'm a frog. You know, why are you, Dharma student, why do you meditate? You know, I'm, a med, I'm a Dharma student. You know, if you ask a writer, why do you write? You know, like a, real, a writer, you know, it's like, I don't have any choice. Sometimes it's hard, it sucks, I don't have any choice to sit down and write. That's how it is when you cut that fetter to doubt. Uh, of doubt. You may not feel like it that day. There may, it may seem unpleasant. You don't have a choice. You don't really have a choice. It's just like, this is what I do. I 
meditate. You know, because we, it's not something that's an act of will anymore. It's no longer an act of will. It's something that's in the heart. You know, we know in the heart that practice is what we do and what we should do and what's in our best interests, that it will lead to true happiness. So we practice. It's like, you know that if you meditate, and it's like, I know if I meditate, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna practice, nothing's gonna stop me because I know this is gonna lead me to true happiness and I have some taste of what true happiness is because I've experienced cessation on that retreat when I was out and, you know, walking along the path and everything dropped away and there was peace and freedom and love. Damn right I'm practicing. That's good, that's what I want. So we practice out of love for ourselves, but actually, you know, it's deeper. When the fetter of doubt is cut, you practice out of love for all beings. And that's just there. You, you can't make that up. You can do meta practice, it helps you. It's like you, you just practice out of love for all beings. Because you know this practice, uh, if you practice in, 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 that you, you're connected to your love for all beings and the wish that all beings are happy. And you know that if you practice, it's gonna have a profound effect on all beings. You know, so it's like, how can I not practice? How can I not practice? The hesitancy is gone. The hesitancy is gone. It's like, this is what I do. Trying to think of an analogy. And, uh, you know, again, analogies aren't perfect, but it's kind of like when you get together with a dear friend, you make plans to get together with a dear friend, there's no hesitancy. It's like, when I make my plans to get together with a dear friend, it's like, I want to see my friend, you know? It's like, if I make, I, I have a very dear friend, Andy, my friend Andy, or my sister, and it's like, you know, there's no thought of not, you know, it's, it's, there's no like, eh, you know, I don't really feel so good today, you know, maybe I'll give Andy a call and tell him I'm not going to get, no, I want to see him, I love him, I want to see him, it's, it, it, there's no question I want to be with him or I want to see my sister or my brother. You know? I mean, that's how it is when you're practicing. You know that difference? I mean, it's a hard thing to explain, but you know that difference? It's like, of course I, you know, I'll, I'll get on a train, I'll, I'll do whatever to see my friend. It's not a question of how many trains I have to take or what I'm doing or whatever, you know? I want to see my friend. What's greater in life than that? That's how it is then when we have the fetter of doubt is cut. So what's your relationship to your daily practice? Another mark and one of the most important marks of conviction, uh, the cutting of the fetter of doubt, is that sila, you know, sila, morality, following the precepts, practicing non-harming, is developed to the point where we're no longer inclined to act harmfully. You know, it's just not something that we would consider. You know, it's like out of the question. It's out of the question. Uh, we, we, we wouldn't, yet the idea of not following the precepts is, is just, you know, it's, it's, in, it's kind of inconceivable. We just wouldn't do it. You know, up until that point, you know, you're sort of forcing yourself, right? I'm going to really try hard to, the precepts, you know, I, I really don't want to follow them, or I don't really want to act skillfully, or I don't will, you know, and it's like when doubt is cut, it's like, there's just no question. It's like, I, I, ain't, I ain't breaching those precepts. There's just, I'm just not doing it. I'm just not doing it.
there's a, a disenchantment with the idea of acting harmfully. You know? You know, we understand that there is a greater happiness in life, and we have the capacity to know it, and we're determined to refrain from doing anything that will deter us, deter us from it. It's like, I am not going to cause harm. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it because I know, I know, not intellectually, I know in my heart that that's going to prevent me from happiness in this life. And I'm just not going to do it. It's just, it's not, it's, it's not a, you know, I mean, you might do it. You might do it because you might get caught up in, you know, a karmic wave or a knot or something. But, you know, you're doing it against your will, <laughs> very strongly, you know. You know, sila morality shifts from obligation and an act of will to a way of acting that's founded in the heart, in wisdom, and in love. It's like you just can't cause harm. You just can't cause harm. And then there's the fetter of self-identity view. So, you know, th these are things like, you know, you can't make it, you know, it happens, right? One day you realize it's just like, I completely don't want to cause harm. You know, before I was like just trying not to, now it's like, I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. It just, all of a sudden, it's like, wow, where did that come from? Well, you've cut the fetter of doubt, you know, and causing harm becomes just unpalatable, unpalatable. Can't do it. Can't do it. Then there's the fetter of self-identity view. So we practice in accord with the Dhamma. We look at holding on. You know, you develop an understanding of not-self by looking at the objects you're holding on to, which means bringing awareness to your holding on, bringing awareness with space. So there's that intuitive awareness and, and knowing in the heart the not-self nature of the objects that you're holding on to. What does this look like when you begin to cut that fetter of self-identity view? So, so let's say thoughts arise. You go into a pattern of thought, some form of liking or disliking, right? You know, this is, tends to be the way that we think because you know, our thinking that's karmic and habitual is some expression of aversion and desire, liking and disliking, wanting and not wanting. You know, so let's say you go into some kind of a thought of liking and disliking. It's like you're walking outside. Oh, I really I like the twilight. I really, I'm a twilight guy. I really like the twilight. You know, or you know, I dislike polenta. That's always one of mine. I dislike. Hopefully, that's not going to be served tomorrow night. But uh, <laughs> I dislike polenta. <laughs> fill in the blank. So you see yourself. You see yourself going into that thought, right? I like that, or I dislike that person, or I like that person, or I dislike this, or I like that. Fill in the blank, right? I mean, I'm kind of saying funny things. But you see that you're thinking, right? And of course, you have to see. You see that you're having those kinds of thoughts of, I like this, I dislike that. And there's the feeling of disenchantment. You know, you know. Not because you read it in the text. You know, that's a meaningless thought. I mean, I was trying to think of a good word for it. It's like, the best word I can, it's like, it's either, that's dumb. That's a dumb thought, or that's bullshit, you know? You just know it's bullshit, you know? You just know it's bullshit. 
you know it's a bullshit thought. You know, as much as you want to engage in it, and you still may engage in it, you still know it's bullshit. You just know it's a bullshit way of thinking. So you didn't know that that's what cutting the fetter of self-identity doubt was like. I mean, you know the thought is empty. You might engage in it, you might pursue it, you probably will, you probably will, but you know it's absurd. And you know the, and you know the thought is not going to help you at all in your effort to awaken. You know that thought is absolutely useless and meaningless in doing the thing that's most important to you in your life, which is to awaken. You know that. I thought I would... A little Shakespeare is always good on a Wednesday night. Kind of Shakespeare, you know, in Macbeth. Macbeth really described this kind of attitude that we begin to have that's in the heart, this attitude in the heart that we begin to have then when we look at our thoughts of liking and disliking, as an example. I've got to get my best Macbeth on here. I always wanted to do Macbeth, so this is, this is my chance. You know, it's like you get to indulge yourself when you sit up here. It's like, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. You know, I mean, that's what, you, you know, that's what those thoughts are like. You know, they're tales told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. They sign and you know that. You know that. What's the phrase? You can't bullshit a bullshitter? Yeah. Or there's an emotion that arises. We've talked about this a lot. Some mind quality. Maybe it's subtle. It's a feeling of dissatisfaction. Oh, my practice isn't so going so well. Or I'm not the best yogi. Or I'm not doing so well in this retreat. Or you know that sitting I didn't do so well. And just as we've been talking about, you, know, you bring awareness. Oh, there's dissatisfaction. There's judgment. And as you bring awareness to that quality, that mental quality, you know it's empty. You know, you know it's not self. You know it's not who you are. You know, you know this in your heart. You know, you know this the same way you know this is yellow, this flower is yellow. You know, you know it as clearly as you know that. You have that perception and you know it. You know it. You know it in your heart. There's not any doubt that that thought is not who you are. It's not self. You may not be ready to let go of it. And that's at stream entry, you, under, you know in your heart the not-self nature of the things that you're holding on to. You may not be ready to let go of them. You know, but you know. You know they're not yours. You know, you, you know that you don't own those thoughts or those emotions. You know the truth. You know the truth. It's kind of like, you know, when I was a teenager, a young adult, you know, this again comes under the category of dating yourself, uh, not going out on dates with yourself, you know, and putting yourself in a chronological range that other people might not be able to understand. Uh, uh, you know, I used to collect records love to collect records, you know, and, you know, you know, my friends collected records, you know, and sometimes I'd go over to my friend Ed's house, you know, or Andy, you know, 
and uh, you know, I borrow. You know, I, you know, I, you know, can I have that you know record for a while? Can I borrow that Elvis Costello record? You know, uh, you know, how about that? Uh, you know, that old Blind Faith album you have there. You know, can I can I borrow that? Yeah, yeah. You know, borrow it. You know, uh, uh, you know, and uh, you know, I get home and I I put the the records in my stack. You know, of records. And, uh, you know, I know it's not my record, but I kind of pretend it is, you know. And maybe somebody comes over, oh, you got the blind, yeah, I got the blind faith, yeah. It's like you sort of pretend it's your record, right, you know. You sort of pretend it's your record, you know, you know. Uh, you know uh, that you really should give it back to your friend. But you don't. But you don't really want to, you know. I know I should give him the record back. But I'm going to hold on to it for a little while longer, you know. Your friend comes over. You kind of put it in the back of the stack. Maybe he'll forget that you borrowed it, you know. Sits in your stack for a while. I mean, I've still got. Re you know, it's funny because my my friend Andy had my records. You know, that was one of the few possessions. I, you know, I not. I mean. Hardly have any left, but you know I've got like you know, maybe a hundred records that were in his attic, and uh, you know there's still there's a few records in there that I borrowed from somebody over the years and never gave back, you know. Uh, but whenever I look at those records, I know they're not mine. You know, it's like to this day, oh yeah, that's Rich Smiley's record. <laughs> Rich, if you're listening to this, just give me a call. You know. I got a beat. I got an old beat, an original Beatles album. It's it's, it's Smiley's, you know. It's all scratched and stuff, you know. And I look at it. I like, I know it's not my album, you know. And that's how it is, you know. You look at those emotions. You look at that dissatisfaction. You know it's not yours. You know it's not yours. In your heart, you don't claim ownership. And then there's the fetter of practices and habits and practices, clinging to habits and practices. In a very classical sense, this can mean clinging to devotional practices. You know, the Buddha warned against clinging to devotional practices as a way of creating, uh, we were talking about this in, with some of the yogis, you know, states of euphoria or you know, you know, pleasant emotions, but you know, that's not the path to awakening. You know? So don't, don't uh, grasp after devotional practices. Practice devotional practices in the support of connecting you to a lineage of beings that have found the truth in the heart. Ajahn Chah says, you know, the way that he liked to talk, he liked to talk about the fetter of habits and practices is social conventions, which I think is a real, and that's what happens. That's what happens. When, when you start to cut that fat fetter, there's a lack of interest, sometimes a loss of interest in social conventions. In, 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 in things of conformity, right? I mean, I always use the example of the phone, right? The cell phone, you know? Uh, you know, everybody's getting a phone. It's like you have no interest in that. You know, or maybe you had one, you know, because everybody else had one, and then you lost interest in it. You lose interest in social conventions. It's very interesting, because it just happens. You know, one day, like, you were involved in these, you know, and, and you were grasping after these social conventions, and then it's like, you just don't have any interest in it anymore. I've been teaching almost 25, no, it's a little less than 25 years, and I've taught hundreds and hundreds of classes, many, many over on 14th Street, 
You know, there was only one time that I can recall in all those years when I decided to, to call a class early, you know, and, and not do the whole class. And I told the class before, but I said, you know, we're not going to end at 9 o'clock tonight. We're going to end at 8.30. You know, and that was when the Mets were playing the Dodgers in the fifth game of the 2015 divisional playoffs. I mean, people that know me know since I was a kid, I am like an ardent baseball fan and a, you know, and a beyond ardent Mets fan. And, you know, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a very strange thing is happening, but over the last year or two or three, I've lost interest in it. You know, it's just, it's not like I said, you know, I gotta stop watching so much baseball because I gotta really work on my practice. It's just like, the interest in watching sports, particular baseball, has just kind of, I mean, there's a little bit, but it's, it's very marginal. It's very marginal. It's not like I dislike it, you know? Uh, but I know in my heart it's not a good use of my time. It's not in the service of my efforts to know true happiness. That, you know, my mind, you know, still may want to watch, but in the heart, and it's like, uh, you know, it's just like, I don't want to watch a baseball game. You know, it's not an idea that I have. It's not forced. Don't watch. Don't watch. That's not good. Buddhists don't watch baseball. You know, it's just like in the heart. It just arose in the heart at some point. You know, really surprised me. It kind of bumps me out some of this stuff. When this this stuff starts happening, it's like, oh, all this stuff I used to do, I'm not interested in anymore. Dang. You know, I mean, there's this little quality almost of of disappointment. It's like all the stuff I used to do, and I. It's just the interest is gone. And the Mets have a pretty good team this year, too, which really sucks, you know? <laughs> because I'm not interested. I'm not interested. Or it's, it's a tiny bit of interest, you know? Maybe I'll watch a few games. But it's just, it's gone, you know? That interest in these social conventions. And there's many others. I just thought that one, if you know me, is a profound example of the loss in social, uh, you know, an interest in social conventions. So when we, when we develop this path of, 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 of awakening, uh, when we learn to uh, develop uh, uh, the ability to, uh, and, and the understanding that we can uh, go through those doors to the deathless, uh, you know, it, it, it's like our old life passes away. You know? I mean, that's the interesting thing. It's like you have a new life, you know, which I wouldn't have, Expect it, but it's like all of a sudden life is different, and you know, and I, I like I feel like I have this enthusiasm for life that I haven't felt all of my adult life. You know, it's like I'm 67 years old, and it's like there's this enthusiasm, and the, and this and this and this joy of of a new life. You know, an old life. And, you know, the old way of being being replaced by a new way of being. The Dhamma is a way of being, a way of living. And I feel this great enthusiasm. So, what the Buddha promises we begin to see is true. We begin to see is true. The doors to the deathless are open for all of us, for all of us. 
for householders, for those living in the USA even, even beings living in the USA. You know, uh, towards the end of our John Lee's life, uh, they were building a new sala, a new temple on the grounds of the monastery. And uh, they started work on the sala and they started to build the foundation where the altar was going to be. And, uh, and they kind of started laying down the concrete stuff. And Ajahn Lee walked out one day. He said, no, you know, I want you to, sh I want you to move where you're going to build that, that altar. You know, and they already had the concrete in the ground. You know, and traditionally, uh, the altar would always face the east. And Ajahn Lee said, our altar must face the west. And they had to get, take up all that concrete and build an altar that faced the West. Now, they often asked Ajahn Lee, why did you make you know, all those workers and everybody do that? You know, and he, he was kind of, he, he didn't really want to answer, but almost everybody understood that he felt the future of the Dharma was in the West and that the altar should face the West. You know, so I take that as a great inspiration you know, uh, in my own path. Uh, and knowing that uh, you know we have this capacity you know to awaken in this life